just a little caveat that we're kind of shifting in a different direction, and, and hopefully I'll just be able to kind of follow the direction that Scripture leads us, because God has sort of changed the original plan. We have now week 15 in the book of James. We are going to wrap it all up today, minus two verses that we're going to get to next week. All right, so we are almost done. Two verses next week, and then I'm going to kind of hit a highlights of where we've been. So if you've missed any part of James, you're going to want to show up next week, because we're going to kind of really hit the great places that we've been and tie it all together with the last two verses. But we're wrapping, for the most part, most of the text up this morning as we look at James chapter 5, and we really talk about this idea of prayer. Because James is a book that's really calling us to action and movement and doing. James wraps all that up by reminding us that we really can't do all that much, that the Lord is the one that moves in and through all the stuff that we do and that we ultimately need him. You know, James has been a powerful study for me because, and somebody asked me at the end of last week, they said, Trev, is James your, your, you spent 15 weeks in it, is James your favorite book in the Bible? My answer is really easy, and it's no. In fact, James may be my least favorite book in the Bible. I mean, because I cannot read it and compartmentalize its pieces. I can't read it and be like, oh, those are really good sort of stories, and I, and I like what God is doing there, because when I read James... I am convicted to the core. I am called to action. I'm challenged to go and to surrender and do and die. It is filled with my own sinfulness and just kind of, yes, kind of, kind of seeping with the grace of Christ. Like it is just a powerful book and I can't stand it because I can't read it and not be affected. And so as we've gone through this, what I've been really challenged to in my own life is really looking at it and saying, God wants so much more from me than what I'm willing to give him. What would it look like to truly surrender my life? And as we've talked about this series, live a life authentic, a life that says, Jesus, you are all that I need. So I don't really like the book of James, but I feel like I need the book of James to remind me of my own sinfulness, my need for Jesus, the grace of God, and my challenge to go and die, to live an authentic Christian life. And so we're wrapping this picture up by really challenging ourselves to say, what would it look like if we truly gave our whole hearts, our whole lives to Jesus and said, God, I want exactly what you want for me. Last week we kind of unpacked uh, two words that were really kind of the beginning part of James chapter 5 and those words were patience and perseverance. That in the middle of difficulties in life, struggles and, and hardships and trials and all those things that we are called to live in patience and perseverance. And we unpacked what that looked like by talking about patience really being about trust and hope. Trusting that God is who he says he is and that God can do what he says he can do. And hope is the idea of I live in confident expectation that God is in absolute control of all things. And, and the patience isn't about just sort of keeping your chin up when times are hard, but it's really about living in trust and hope um, that God is who he says he is and that God can do what he says he can do. And patience, or perseverance, while closely connected to patience, they're not the same thing. Perseverance is living faithfully in the middle of difficult situations. And I talked about how most of us can't stand the idea of perseverance because we don't want to learn to persevere. We don't want to learn to develop character. We want relief from life's struggles. So when life hits us with the difficulties and issues and struggles and all those things, we want out. We want solutions. We want it done. But the Bible talks about it in James 1 that when we face perseverance, perseverance develops maturity in Christ. Most of us don't want maturity. We just want it to be gone. And when we opt for relief from our struggles, we are opting for mediocrity. And a lot of the reason that so many of us as followers of Christ are living in the middle of spiritual mediocrity right in the middle is because we opt for quick fix relief from our struggles rather than maturity in Jesus Christ. We unpacked what that looked like last week. And I think it's one of the hallmarks of the book of James. Sometimes life is hard and sometimes life is a mess and sometimes life has issues that we can't explain. 
And in the middle of all those issues, what is our outlook? What are we looking at? Who are we looking towards? We're looking for relief from the problems. God, free me from this. God, deliver me from this. And not Jesus, where are you in the middle of this? And we miss out on growing, maturing in our relationship with Jesus. So if you're walking in struggle today in whatever kind of capacity that looks like, we've got to be trained to look for Christ in the middle of it. God, what are you doing in me? What are you you doing in my heart? And how can I grow in you? And it's an incredibly difficult set of questions to ask. So James kind of sets up chapter 5 with that picture. When struggles happen, when life happens, when difficulties happen, just when you just get worn out, we're called to live with patience, not chin up, but trust and perseverance. Well, this morning, for all that sort of doing and action, kind of driven, this driving the book of James, let's got to get our life and surrender our life and die to this and, and, and you know, gear up for all of those things, James ends by reminding us what our biggest need is. And our biggest need is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that revolves around prayer. Prayer. One of the most simple things, right, in all the Christian life. I mean, surely we all know what prayer is and how to do it, right? I mean, we've been trained in it since we were little kids. But I would, I would caution you, and I would even ask you to ask yourself this question. What, really, what role does prayer really play in your life? I mean, really and truthfully, what role does prayer play in your life? Is it, is it a habit? Is it something you do before bed? Is it something you do before mealtimes at home but not in public? Is it something that you do with your spouse? Do you pray with your wife? Do you pray over your kids? Do you pray with your kids? Do you pray when things are tough or, or difficult? Is prayer something you do all the time? Why? What are the reasons and what role does prayer really play in your life? Because what James is going to lay out in a really simple way this morning, which I think the, the direction the Lord's taking us is, is that there's some very simple things that he's going to lay out for us. So our picture of prayer for our own lives and for our life as a church. And the question really is, do we take it seriously? Do we really take our need for prayer seriously we're gonna be in the book of james chapter five if you've got yours i want you to go ahead and find it um and we are going to dive into these last seven or last seven verses minus two together so um as we really talk about prayer and unpack what our own prayer life looks like and i was pretty convicted because i my, my prayer life is really really generates around lip service a lot of times it's it's habitual and and, and it's just very seldom is it driven by a deep passion to know Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at the call for the follower of Christ and the call for the church um, with a couple of things that James lays out in a really simple way. And then we're going to engage in it together as a community as we take time to pray together as a community this morning. So James chapter 5, turn my Bible right side up. James chapter 5, before we open it up and dive into verse 13, let's, uh, let's just pray together, asking that God would open our hearts this morning. Lord, I, I'm just grateful to gather here uh, with this faithful group of folks that would come week in and week out and, Lord, study your word together and look at being a church and turning that idea upside down, trying to change our own picture of what it means to follow you. And James is such an awesome portrayal of what the church looks like, Father, kind of ugly and messy and broken, redeemed by Christ with a passion to live together. Lord, teach us about prayer this morning. Whatever kind of preconceived notions or thoughts we had about prayer, what it is or wasn't is, is, and I pray that we could lay them aside and that you could reinvigorate our hearts with a passion to know you and experience you this morning through the idea of prayer. Take a moment and just, in your own heart, ask the Lord to move in you. Just, even if that's weird, if you're here for the first time or whatever, just whisper that. Just do me that favor and just say, God, I want you just to move in me. Just whisper that little truth this morning and ask God to move in you.
Just pray for the person beside you. Just pray that God would do something in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Just offer their heart up for the Lord and just say, God, I want you to do something in this person's life. We never know what the people next to us are walking through. Lord, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts with your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we ask that you would move in us this morning as we talk about something that we, well, we, we know so much about. We want you to turn those ideas upside down and uh, give us a simple picture of what you're really calling us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James wraps this book up really with the call to rely on the Lord. I mean, with all this talk about doing and being doers of the word and faith and living in faith and dying and surrendering and being slaves to Christ, with all of those things about what it requires me, James wraps all this up by basically saying, we can't do any of it without the Lord. And developing a relationship with the Lord really is about prayer. It's about prayer. So let's take a look at these verses together. We're going to look at 13 through about 18, and then uh, we'll just kind of unpack them like we t- typically do. So uh, this is James 5:13. Any of you, if, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call on the elders of the church to come and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. We're going to catch the last two verses next week, but I want to pay special attention to these because prayer is is a really important concept and I think James ends with it very intentionally. And I don't know what your understandings are of prayer, what role it plays in your life, but really prayer is, is communication with God. It is the most intimate communication that we can have with a God who created us, who breathed, literally breathed life into your very lungs. Prayer is that intimate form of communication. It allows God to have access literally to our hearts and us to have access to the heartbeat of God. All right? Prayer is worship in its simplest form. Prayer demonstrates our need for God. It demonstrates our desire to surrender our wills and all things to God. It basically is our way of saying, God, here I am and here you are and I lay my life down. It is the way that we develop a relationship with God. If we are not spending time in prayer, if we are not people that pray, we will never know the heartbeat of God. God has allowed us access to himself through Jesus Christ and prayer is the avenue that we use to develop that relationship. That is just the scriptural facts about prayer. But really the bigger question is, is what does prayer look like in your life? What role does it play? And I started sort of tracing my own life and thinking about how we pray together as a family before bed and we pray together before, before meals. And, you know, if Meredith and I have something pretty significant that comes up, we pray over that together. But, I mean, really those are habits that we've developed over about 15 years. And I pray over the prayer cards, and we pray over the needs of this church, but I've, de- I've kind of developed a, sadly, I've developed a habitual kind of experience in my prayer life, and very, very little of it is driven by deep passion to know Christ. And I was reading this, I, I think that James is really putting three things out there that we need to pay really special attention to, or three calls 
that we need to pay attention to as a church and as individuals. And the first is really obvious, and it's right there in those first few verses, and it's really just to pray. And I started thinking about this. I was like, well, I mean, that's pretty obvious. But he he puts some things in there that are really important. He says, listen, are any of you troubled? Pray. Are any of you happy? Then sing songs of praise. Now, you remember prayer is not just about folding our hands and kneeling by our bed or, or, you know, being in church or using really fancy words. You know, prayer is really, if it's just communication with God, then when we sing on Sunday morning, when we shout songs of praise, when we sing with our hearts, that worship is an expression of prayer. We are singing to the very heart of God. But in our Christian lives, we compartmentalize things. We have worship, we have prayer, we have fellowship, we have, you know, whatever these words are that we use to define Christian things, we keep them in their categories. But Scripture messes them all up. Scripture blends them all together and says, this picture of Christian life is is about doing all these things together. Fellowship and worship and prayer can't be separated. When we gather as a church and we fellowship together, we are very much engaging in worship. When we go to the City Rescue Mission and we serve lunch like we have the past two weeks on Sunday morning, or past two months on Sunday mornings, we are engaging in worship. It's not mission and worship and and fellowship and prayer. These are are things that are mixed together. And so James is basically saying that when you sing songs of praise, we are praying, we are offering up our hearts to the Lord. We are engaging in this communication, this relationship with the Father. He says, so when you're troubled, you should pray, right? If you're happy, sing songs of praise. And he says, if any of you are sick, what do you do? You call upon the elders of the church, and they'll come over, anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. I was really struck by the images. These, the images in Scripture are so powerful, and we, we just ignore them. And, and I think that if we paid attention to some of these images, it would turn our pictures of church and life upside down. Because I don't know what role you grew up with with, church, with prayer in church, all right? But, but this is probably not your picture. Because I've been in a lot of churches, I've worked for a lot of churches, and and this was never our picture even as a church of what prayer looked like. Our picture of churches usually is this, uh, when it comes to prayer, my wife is sick, or or I'm sick, or we've got an ailment, or my my father's in the hospital, or whatever, and so what do we do? We call the church office, and we say, I want to go ahead and add my wife who is going into the hospital for appendicitis, and, and I need to add her to the prayer list. And the church secretary adds her to the prayer list, and that goes out on a monthly newsletter usually, or, or sometimes it's given to the pastor. And that's really about where that stops. Sometimes we'll call our close personal friends and we'll say, hey, I, I need you to pray for me. I need a job. Or, or my wife, you know, she's got appendicitis. I need you to pray for us. And most of us will answer that phone and say, yeah, absolutely, I'll pray for you, with no intention to really pray for that person. I mean, if we're really honest. It's really no different than when the bank teller, we walk in and she says, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing great, but you're really not. But you don't want to say that, so you just sort of something to say. Because we don't take seriously even the call of our people in our life when they ask us to pray for them. We've created such a Christian subculture of kind of friendliness that even when it comes to things like prayer, they're just things we put on lists in places. The church puts it on a list, right? You put it on your list. If you really think about it, you pray for it at night. If you don't, you don't forget. And if it sounds harsh, it's just because it's true. We don't approach prayer with any kind of fervency, with any kind of passion, with any kind of desperate need. But if you look at this picture of church, what happens? James says, church, listen, if you're sick, what do you do? You call the church and they come to you. The leaders, church leaders will show up at your house and they will anoint you and they will pray for you. The church will gather 
when you have deep needs because there was a sense of urgency. It doesn't say, it doesn't give a, a degree of how sick you are. It just says basically if you're ill, call the church and let the leaders of the church people show up at your house and pray over you and anoint you and God will honor it. Asking someone to pray for us just makes us feel a little better. But most of us don't want people from the church showing up at our house. It goes both ways. As much as the church would never want to come over to your house, we don't really want them coming over. We just want to offer that idea because it makes me feel a little bit better that if I ask you to pray for me, maybe, you know, I've kind of some kind of little deal, this will work. But if you pay attention to Scripture, prayer is not lip service games that we play with God. But it should be a deep passion of our hearts that in the middle of joy, in the middle of trouble, in the middle of sickness, we go before the Lord. Prayer is going before God and it is the call of the church. And if we really allowed these images to define our picture of church, it would change the way that we think about our relationships. Who prays over you? I mean, really prays over you. Who do you pray over? And not just, oh Lord, you know, heal my best friend's father, but I mean, really pray over I started really getting convicted about this because I have created such habitual prayer life for myself. And you ask me to pray for you, and I will pray for you. But it will be in one little category, at one little point in my day, and it's probably not done in all confession with deep passion. And I look at this picture of church, and I say, in every moment, joy and struggle and triumph, we are offering our hearts for the Lord. And when someone's sick, the church shows up. What if we were a church that when it had needs, we showed up in each other's lives? That we are honest enough to say, God, we will pray together because we know that prayer is our avenue to the very heartbeat of God. The church is called to pray to show up in each other's lives, which means we've got to take risks and say, I want the church to show up in my life. And the church not being the building or the whole gathering, but people, followers of Christ, I want them to show up in my life. Remember, we're not talking church, we're not talking particular church, like they just have to be from the Vine Community Church, but believers. I want the church, followers of Christ, to show up in my life. And I want to show up in the lives of others when we have needs. Listen to this. So we're called to pray. Listen to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. Now, we're real honest. This is terrifying. And we hope it's rhetorical. We hope that that James really doesn't mean confess your sins to each other. I mean, we don't confess our sins to ourselves, much less to each other. I mean, some of us on the rare occasion might use a counselor or a therapist who we don't know personally and who is legally bound to secrecy. But we ain't going to invite the church into that mess. And James says, confess your sins to each other. You know what? And, and I think a lot of the reason is because a lot of us have been so jaded by the church, by our experience with church people, that church is not safe. If you've been in churches at all over your life, you've seen behind the curtain, you've been on a committee and it's ruined your passion for followers of Christ. Church isn't a safe place to confess. And one of the great tragedies of the church is that we have exchanged the call to bear each other's burdens, to hear each other's sins, and to pray over each other. We've exchanged it for gossip, elitism, and power. And we need to repent. 
It's one of the great tragedies of the gathered church. What does James say? Confess your sins to each other. And then what? And pray for one another. Don't judge one another. Don't tell them what they've done. Pray for them. Dare I ask this question, who do you have in your life that you confess your sin to? And not just like, you know, our little Catholic picture of confession where we go in a box and we say the things that we've done and we feel a lot better. But I mean like a relationship with someone that you trust who loves Jesus that you say, I blew it or I am feeling this or I can't admit this out loud because it's so hard, but I am so scared of this. Who do you have in your life that you confess to that will pray over you? Maybe reverse that question and says, who's trusted you with their lives? See, I would venture to bet that very few of us in here, very few of us in here, have someone in our lives that we truly confess to, truly will pray over us, or have someone in our life that will confess to us. Even in our marriages, we don't do that. Our marriages aren't safe places for confession, most of them. We failed as a church. What James is saying is that we've got to pray literally together for each other. We've got to be willing to confess our sin without fear of judgment and repercussion, but that my church will pray for me. We've had moments of that in our lives, surely, but what if we took this seriously? What if when we got caught in a struggle and a fear, and not just that sin, because I know what we're all thinking. We're all thinking like that totally grievous, like heinous sin where, you know, we did something really bad. But I'm talking about that daily life where we just blow it, where I'm so fearful because I don't know where I'm going to get paid from next month. Or I'm so fearful because my husband is starting to show signs of of his health is deteriorating. Or I'm fearful because my son is dating this girl and she's, well, she's not who I really wanted for him. And I'm afraid of that. And God, I'm not trusting you and not trusting you with sin. Who do we have in our lives that we just confess to? And I've, I've told this before. When I was in college and a little bit beyond, so six-ish years, I had a few extra laps in college. I met with the same group of guys for, I know you all are doing the math right now. For, um, I met with the same group of guys every Monday night for six years. And some of you have met some of those guys. Um, my buddy Matt's a pastor in Mississippi, and he's been here to preach before. And we went down and saw Brandon, who is in, he's our missionary in Guatemala. He was part of that little circle. And we met some of these, these guys. We, uh, we met together every Monday night for six years. And every Monday night, we'd come together, and we'd stare each other in the face, and we would bear our hearts. We'd laugh a lot, we'd cry a lot, but every Monday night, we'd come and we'd just basically lay our failures out. And we'd talk about our struggles and our triumphs, and we got married at the same times, have kids at the same times, and we walked through tragedy at the same times. And, and I look back at that season in my life, which was, I would love to say it was only a short time ago, but it keeps getting farther and farther away. And I look back at that and I say, God, that was the picture of what church, I've always wanted church to be, right? Seven guys sat around together and said, we love Jesus enough to open our hearts to each other. And, and once you move out of those kind of relationships, it's really hard to recreate them, isn't it? Because I venture to say that most of us don't really have that. Even the small Bible studies that we may meet in or even our life groups are, they're, they're filled with walls of protection and safety. Because we don't really know or trust how people are going to respond to us and it takes time but what james is saying is that the church should be the place where we can bear our soul where our our sin story can be on the front page of the paper and we can walk in this place and be prayed for and loved doesn't mean we have to love everything you've done 
but it means that we will love you because Jesus loves me. See, this is where the church has failed. We forget that Jesus is loving me in spite of all of my sin and failure. And I don't have the right to do anything else except love you. So James says, pray. In good and bad and trouble and sickness, call the church together. Be a church that prays. Call the leaders in. Pray together. Be passionate about it. Anoint. Pray over. Lay hands on. It's one of the reasons that we try and do just small things when people leave our community and things like that and go to the place. We just want to pray for you and send them out and touch them and lay hands on them. And we just want to be active in our passion to pray. But we're not great at it. And then it says confess. And this is the trigger point where we need to be a church that confesses our failure here. God, we're not honest. I'm not saying we've got to walk in here next Sunday and you've got to raise your hand and say, hey, listen, Trev, here's the deal. I know you talked about confession last week. Everyone want you to hear me. You know, I did, I don't, I'm not looking for that, but I'm finding, I want you to see this as a, a real call of James to find the church, followers of Christ in your life that you can bear your heart to and that will bear their heart to you and that you may pray over them. That the church should be safe. Should be safe. Then James wraps this whole thing up, and we'll kind of close out with this, by saying, by giving an example of someone who kind of really lived into this. He says, Elijah was a man who was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, it did not rain for three and a half years, and then again he prayed and it rained, right? So Elijah, Old Testament prophet, just like us, most of the time we don't look at biblical characters and think they're like us, but if you really pay attention to their lives, they're just broken, messy people. Peter, even James, John, Elijah, Moses, they're all broken. God has used them for extraordinary things, but it was always God's way and God's glory, right? It's always God's strength. They're not superheroes. Elijah was an ordinary dude who had some trust issues with the Lord. But, but James uses an example, and he says, Elijah prayed earnestly and deeply and prayed that there wouldn't be rain. And I could give you all the Old Testament background about this story, but it's not really the point. And it didn't rain. And then he prayed again, and it didn't rain. Basically, what James is saying is that, do you really trust God? We talked about trust last week, so I won't go to it too much this week, but do you really trust that when you pray, God moves? Now, I know what you're sitting there saying. You're going, Trip, listen, I'll be honest with you, man. I have prayed for this thing. I prayed for my mother who was dying of cancer to get well, and she still died. What do you do with that? Because I believed and I prayed, yet she still died. And we've all prayed for things that didn't happen. We prayed for them to be resolved, for those things to be fixed, and they weren't fixed. So Elijah doesn't praise and it doesn't rain, and he prays again and it rains. Well, that doesn't work for me. Because if we're real honest, we've got those things that we think. What do you do with that? One of the things I always come back to is that prayer, this communication, this interpersonal relationship, this sort of pouring out of our heart to the Lord, It's not really just about us telling God what we want and what we need and the time frame in which we want and need it. And then when that doesn't happen, looking at God going, where were you? Prayers where our will surrenders to God's will. The perfect example of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember right before his crucifixion, Jesus goes to the garden, he asks the disciples to pray for him. He says, listen, James and John, Peter, you guys pray for me. And what do the disciples do? They fall asleep. Twice they fall asleep. But Jesus goes into the garden. He knows that he's about to be handed over, betrayed. All of his best friends in the world are going to run. He's going to be beaten, mocked, crucified, and killed. He knows all these things. 
and he falls on his knees and with such deep passion that the Bible tells us that it begins to sweat blood, literally a medical condition of stress, that blood droplets form on the outer layer of his skin. He is praying. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, God, if there is any other way, Father, that you can take this from me, what I'm getting ready to walk through, please do it. But then what does Jesus say? He says, but, but, not your will, but my, not my will, but yours. In the middle of that moment of Jesus' deepest desire, from a personal humanity standpoint, he surrenders his will to the will of God. See, we could all look at that and go, well, Jesus prayed that that God would take that from him, and he didn't, and he still was crucified, and he was killed. But God had a bigger plan of redemption in mind, and we should be so grateful for it because of Christ's death and resurrection. We have been justified. See, prayer is not where we take our will and we say, God, surrender to my timing and my framework. Prayer is where we come before the Lord and we say, God, this is all I know to pray for, but I want what you want, not what I want. In all of my humanity, God, I want so desperately for this thing to happen, and I want it to happen now. But really, Lord, what I deeply want is I want what you want. I want what you have for me, and I want to surrender my will to yours. Prayer is not a checklist of things that we run down to try and let God know. These are the things that are going on in case you haven't heard. I've lost my job. My mom's sick. God, can you take care of these things? Prayer is where we bring our heart before the Lord and we say, God, I want to know you in joy and struggle and triumph and pain and hurt. I want to know you. And God, I confess my sin. I want to get with the church and I want to lay my heart out and I want people to pray for me. The Bible tells us when they pray for us, we'll be healed physically, spiritually. God will redeem our hearts. And where we surrender and trust our will to God. Just like we talked about last week, do you really trust that God knows more than you do? Do you really trust that he knows better for your life than you do? Then surrender your will to his. This is a picture of prayer that James is calling us to. The question is, are we going to be people at church that really live into it? I had a bunch of other complicated things I was going to do, but I don't think I will. You know, one of the things that we do after we, we, do, we do communion once a month, and the next Sunday usually, because it was Mother's Day, we take a time where we pray together as a community, and we're going to do that here this morning. We're going to just hear our prayer needs, I'm going to write them down, and then we're just going to pray over them together as we kind of close out our time in worship. And I, I decided to do this at the end today because I think it's important to hear what James was saying so that we don't take those moments lightly. That when I say, raise my hand and say, sure, but I'm really struggling with this, or I, my, my father's sick, or whatever, that we take those times and those words seriously. And so I'm going to invite you to offer up your uh, prayer requests, and I'm going to jot them down right here on this piece of paper. <laughs> 